Hey, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. I paid them. Uh, my name is James Michael Smith. I'm the pastor of discipleship, like Rob said, at Good Shepherd United Methodist Church. And um, we've been on board with Charlotte One since day one. Actually, Dave Hickman and I were in seminary together. And uh, he was working up at Mech, and I was working down at Good Shepherd. And we were both doing young adult ministry. So we got together for lunch one time. And we were just sitting around talking, saying, man, it'd be so cool if we didn't have to do our own young adult ministries and reinvent the wheel, if we could get together and do the. Anyway, long story short, you're here. And uh, it's awesome. And I told him, as long as I'm around, Good Shepherd will be on board. So it's amazing to see how it's come to. Um, yeah, clap for yourselves. Sure, go. Woo. Uh, last week, Dave gave an amazing message on the cross of Christ and, and how God's love and God's justice and God's mercy all came together. And, um, and he asked some handsome guy to do a painting while he was preaching, too. And... Uh, Dang, nothing. Uh, but anyway, I got to work on this uh, off to the side and just sort of didn't really have it too much planned, but he told me kind of like the theme and then just said, go from there. And so as I was painting it, I was thinking it's, it's pretty neat. And we talk about uh, the cross, and, and for Christians, the cross is it. It's, that's the heart of our faith. Every, everything else about Christianity is minuscule compared to the cross. In fact, Gandhi, who wasn't a Christian, said, I know of nothing else in any other religion that even remotely resembles the cross of Christ. And it's true. It's what makes us uh, unique and distinct people. And we've heard about, last week we heard about sort of what God was doing through the cross of Christ and how that helped our situation and, and, and fixed the disconnect that was there. And I was thinking, um, Dave texted me today just after I got out of a staff meeting and said, hey, you're on tonight. And uh, and so I was thinking on the days leading up to this, if I were going to speak, what would I speak on and to kind of tie in. And I thought, I wonder what the cross was like from Jesus' perspective. You know, we, we, we read about it and, and we think about it from our perspective, but things were going through Jesus' mind as well. And there's been a lot of sermons preached and a lot of things taught about, uh, you know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was thinking of each and every one of you by name and Maybe, uh, I don't know, he was God in the flesh, but as far as I know in Scripture, while he was still in the flesh, he didn't have his omniscience. Uh, and so I think that, um, I don't know if he was necessarily thinking of that. Uh, we get some hints of what he was thinking because he said some things while he was on the cross. One of the things he said that's always puzzled a number of people and puzzled me for a long time until I really dug back into the Old Testament and saw what he was really getting at was his cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, theologians call this the cry of dereliction, uh, him lamenting the fact that, that God had forsaken him. And, and some theologians have written all about how this shows that Jesus was human like us, and he doubted, and, and uh, he truly felt alone and didn't think that, you know, thought it was a waste, and he had done everything wrong or whatever, and they've gone on and on. And I don't think that's exactly what he had in mind when he was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I think there was a much deeper level that Jesus was working on as a first century Hebrew man. And I want us to look at that passage. I want us to look at, it's in Matthew 27. And if you have your Bible or the one in the pew in front of you, Matthew, first book in the Gospels in the New Testament, and it's at the very end. And I'm going to be starting in verse 34. And while you're finding that passage, uh, one of the greatest parts of my job 
at the church that I work at is I get paid to be a full-time teacher of the Bible, and which means I get paid to be a full-time student of the Bible and, and study and dig in and, and get to, to glean from all of these amazing theologians and biblical scholars and pastors and people that have come before me. And uh, I love whenever I get to teach on this passage because it illustrates to me one of the greatest um, uh, miracles of Scripture, which is how it all unites together and it all ties together, how the New Testament authors looked at the, what we call the Old Testament, but what they called the Bible. And so I want us to look at this particular one. I'll start in verse 34. Uh, they've taken Jesus uh, up. He's led him to carry his cross and taken him to Golgotha, where they crucified him. means the place of the skull. 34. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the two robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And after that, Matthew goes on to talk about the events that happened and the famous tearing of the curtain. And, and there's so much in this, but there's a couple of things that are fascinating to me. Um, at the very beginning, it says that they offered him uh, wine mixed with gall to drink. And that was a way of numbing somebody on the way to crucifixion. Crucifixion was considered by the Roman Empire the worst form of capital punishment that there was. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, by law, you could not be crucified if you were condemned to death. Uh, crucifixion was so vulgar, it wasn't even talked about in decent circles, Roman historians tell us. And so a lot of times, uh, people who were somewhat compassionate to those dying would offer them uh, something to sort of blur their mind and, and make the pain hurt a little less. Uh, and Jesus refused that. And then they do the thing we all have seen where they divide his clothes, uh, they cast the lots. Casting lots is like rolling dice in the ancient world, and uh, whoever rolls snake eyes gets the robe or whatever. Um, sitting down then, they keep watch. They put a sign over his head. They crucify him between two Tradition has said thieves, but the word is actually lestes. It means brigand or insurrectionist or rebel. Because you didn't crucify people for stealing. You crucified them for revolt against Rome. And that's who Jesus was put up against because as the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, he was public enemy number one in Rome's eyes who were trying to keep Judea under their control. And then he just starts getting mocked. Uh, he gets mocked by everyone. He gets mocked by the guards that are around him. He gets mocked by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. Those are all of Israel's uh, leadership. They, they say, you know, okay, if you're it, 
get down. Let's see you, Messiah boy. What you got? And nothing happens. Jesus hangs there for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, morning time until noon. Um, he hangs there, and darkness came over the whole land. And then he makes the famous cry, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, in Aramaic, and, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the people listening, the thing that they said, if you notice, they said, hey, he's calling for Elijah. That connection's sort of missed in our English translation. But Elijah's name in Hebrew is Eliyahu. My God is Yahweh. And so Jesus slurred and beaten and probably missing teeth and, and barely conscious, you know, him crying out. And if he says, Ali, Ali, they might think he's trying to call out for Elijah. Because in Jewish tradition, based on the book of Malachi, the last prophet in the Hebrew Bible, Elijah was supposed to come back before the Messiah and sort of point the way. Here's the Messiah. And so they're saying, now he's, 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 pulling, he's grasping at straws. He's pulling anything he can, saying, Elijah, come on, you're supposed to save me. You're supposed to set me up. That's what they were thinking. But it was because they misheard what he said. He wasn't calling out for Eliyahu. Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms, which was Israel's prayer book, um, every prayer, every type of prayer you can imagine is in the book of Psalms. And uh, the Psalms didn't have numbers. The Bible didn't have chapters or verses until the Middle Ages. And, and in Jesus' day, especially the, the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms, they weren't numbered. Uh, the way that you titled the Psalm was the first verse in the Psalm. So Jesus cries out, Ali, Ali, Lama Sabachthani, and anyone there listening who spoke Aramaic and knew their scriptures would have picked up on this. And in fact, somebody did, because if you saw where it says, as soon as he said that, and they said, Elijah's coming to save him, one of them runs up and fills a sponge with vinegar and puts it on a stick and gives it to him to drink. That doesn't really follow because he's already refused drink on the way up there. So why would this person, I mean, if I'm seeing somebody crucified, my first thought is not give them a drink, uh, especially if they've just cried out and everybody's thinking, oh, they're calling Elijah. So, but I think that the person who ran with the sponge, I think he knows what's going on. I think he knows his Bible. Because Jesus was quoting the first line of Psalm 22. And we're going to look at that. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, the book of Psalms, if you hold your Bible and just let it fall open in the middle, Psalms is right there. And Psalm 22 was a psalm of David. David was Israel's greatest king. Before he was enthroned, though, David had been anointed as king, but there was a pretender king still on the throne, a guy named Saul. And there was a whole period of time where David, the true and rightful king, had to flee and had to run off into the wilderness and hide while Saul and his, all of the people of Israel basically chased him and tried to find him. He was a king without a throne. His own people were against him, and he felt isolated and alone. And David was also a poet and a songwriter and a musician. And so he would write all of these songs, all of these poems about how he felt. And like any good poet, like any good artist, he would embellish, he would use metaphor, he would use imagery, he would really try to make you feel how he felt. I think David also might have been a little bit prophetic in some of those songs because, well, you'll see in just a minute. Look at Psalm 22. This is, this is King David writing about 1000 B.C., Jesus crucified around 30 A.D., so 1,030 years 
before Jesus ever comes on the scene, is hanging on the cross, David writes this. Listen for some things that are familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You're the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and weren't disappointed. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him if he, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Huh. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Let me read that again. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Holy moly! Did you see all of the things in there that were happening when Jesus was being crucified? That you can't really orchestrate if you're a victim of crucifixion? Like if Jesus was trying to fulfill this, which one, why would you ever do that? And two, how are you going to get all these things to happen? Let me go through some of the symbolism real quick so that you don't miss anything. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Interesting, that word saving is the Hebrew word yasha. is where we get the name Yahshua, which is Jesus in modern English. Just a neat little connection. Who knows if there's anything there, but I thought it's kind of cool. He cries out. There's this lament. There's this Lord, and this is David talking, King David talking to God, saying, God, you told me I'm your man. I'm your Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, one who is king over the people and over Israel. David was the Messiah in his day, small m. And he's crying out to God, God, rescue me because I am not feeling very messianic right now. I'm feeling like crap right now, and I need you to come help me. And listen to how he phrases this suffering. David talks about, um, but I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. That's exactly what the people were doing while Jesus was hanging on the cross. Same language is even used. Then there's this cool thing in verse 9 and 10 about David starts talking about how God brought him forth from his, womb, from his mother's womb and how he had been his God from birth. Uh, it's really interesting because Israel is a patriarchal society. In a patriarchal society, usually, if you were going to talk about your upbringing and your raising, you would probably mention your father. Your father's line is where everybody judged you on anyway. But twice, 
David mentions his mother, not his father. That's just kind of neat because a thousand years later, Jesus comes on the scene. We know a lot about his mother, but the people around him said, but who's his dad? Verse 12, he says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions. Uh, bulls and lions, symbol of strength, symbol of, of power, symbol of things that are really scary. Um, Bashan is a place, uh, sort of, I guess it would be the northeast of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan River. And it's very lush, very fertile, and uh, livestock there are huge. And bulls there, really big, like bulls with the horns, uh, that could easily kill you. Um, it's very scary. It's a very powerful image, and that's what David said he felt like he was surrounded by. Um, surrounded by these powerful people, and, and he feels helpless, and he feels like there's, it's hopeless. He makes an interesting point down in verse 16. It says, dogs have surrounded me. Um, now, for David, that might have been literal, maybe, but dog is a euphemism all throughout the Bible for Gentile. Gentiles were called dogs. Keleb is the word in Hebrew, dog. And it was a way of kind of saying people that aren't part of us, not Gentiles, they're, they're, they're dogs. Very interesting because who was standing around Jesus while he was being crucified? Gentile soldiers. And what were those Gentile soldiers, what were those dogs doing? They were casting lots for his clothing after they had pierced his hands and feet. Now, what David was, had in mind when he wrote this we don't exactly know, because we never know of David's hands or feet being pierced. Uh, we never know of his clothes being divided and casting lots. But David, being a prophet and being a poet, would have prophetically and poetically described his suffering and how he felt in a way that 1,030 years later, the son of David, the capital M Messiah, would exactly describe his situation. The psalm is not going well right now. David and Jesus, if he's quoting this, are not feeling good. And if it ended here, Jesus' cry on the cross probably would be, would be uh, almost uh, an admission of defeat. The psalm doesn't end here, though. Next word, verse 19. But, Lord, all this crap's happened to me. I feel like this. I got dogs and bulls and piercing my hands and feet, and my bones are out of joint. They're not broken, interesting, but they're out of joint. I'm thirsty. My mouth is dry. But, but you, O Lord, be not far off. Verse 19, excuse me, verse 19. O my strength, come quickly to help me deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions and save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he's not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him. He has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. 
All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who can't keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. That's how Psalm 22 ends. Jesus hanging on the cross crying out, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, is the equivalent of Jesus saying, Psalm 22. And anybody listening that knew Psalm 22, like the guy with the stick and the sponge, would have said, wait a minute, Psalm 22, I remember how the guy in Psalm 22 felt. That was King David. He was feeling, well, I can't alleviate anything other than his thirst. Let me at least do that. That's a marginal reading. I don't know if he actually thought that. But uh, it, it seems to make the most sense that he runs up and gives him something to drink. Well, meanwhile, everybody else who's not paying attention or those who aren't even thinking in that realm, they're still thinking of him as a defeated king or a defeated king wannabe are saying, oh, he's calling Elijah. Jesus had already said in his ministry, Elijah's come, and he's told you about me. His name was John the Baptist, and you, cru- you beheaded him. Jesus wasn't looking for Elijah. Jesus wasn't looking to be saved. Jesus knew what was happening. Was he suffering? Absolutely. Was he in torment and agony? Absolutely. We get the word excruciating to describe something really painful. Excruciating comes from a Latin phrase, excruciatus, which means from the cross, because that was the most excruciating thing that they could think of. Jesus was going through that. Was he separated from God? Theologically, yes. At the moment when Jesus took on all the sins of all of us, He was separated from that holy God, and the Trinity was rent asunder for that brief moment in time. Did he feel abandoned? Absolutely. But did he know why and what was coming? Yes, he did. And he shows it by quoting the psalm of the first king of Israel, King David, who was on the run, being chased by his own people, not having a throne, being rejected, being despised, being scorned, feeling helpless. But in spite of that, David said, but God, you are the Holy One. You've done all of this in my life. And because you've done that, I can have confidence that you are going to take care of this somehow and you're going to turn it into good. Now, the cool thing is David never experienced anything like all the nations coming to him and all of the people worshiping God. David was describing in in hyperbole an image that his suffering and the suffering of God's righteous servant would bring about really good things to all the ends of the earth. And in David's time, that might have just been a way of kind of speaking, you know, if you're like, yeah, the guy at Charlotte 1 talked forever tonight. Uh, You know, you wouldn't mean literally forever, but you mean a long time. David doesn't live up to his own words here. Jesus does live up to those words. A millennium later. We're sitting here because all the nations of the earth have been hearing the gospel. We're sitting here because posterity has served him. We're sitting here because it's been proclaimed to a people yet unborn at the time, which is us. We're sitting here because Psalm 22 happened. It happened to Jesus. Jesus knew it was happening to him. He knew he was the anointed king. He knew he was the son of David. He knew he was the capital M Messiah. He knew he was the Passover lamb. He knew that his death and his suffering would somehow have ramifications that would span the globe. Interesting that after Jesus goes through this and he rises from the grave and he appears to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, 
the last thing Jesus tells them is, go, take this to the world. Finish Psalm 22. I've done the work. You give the message. And that's what we've been doing for 2,000 years now. He did the work. We preach the message. And people from all the ends of the earth, if they want that, they come to the king, the son of David, the true Messiah. I don't think Jesus had given up at all. I think Jesus knew that theologically he was forsaken, and he knew that emotionally and physically he felt forsaken. But deeper than that, in his spirit, he knew that his forsakenness was what was making the way for everyone to have a relationship with God. And he knew that he was fulfilling thousands of years of Israel's history. And it's why at the end of Psalm 22, it's very interesting. It says, you know, praise God, oh, it's great, it's great, for he has done it. doesn't say what it is. He has done it. Jesus' follower, John, who was standing at the cross, watching all of this, the only one who didn't run away, he records the last thing that Jesus says before he dies. It is finished. He has done it. It is finished. Everything that God had planned to do in and through and by Israel, Jesus wrapped it up in himself and said, I will do what my people could not do, which is be a light to the nations, bless the earth, and bring the nations to my Father. Because that's what Israel was called to do in the beginning, and that's what Jesus, the King of Israel, has done. We're going to end tonight with some more amazing worship, and there's no specific call to action or application here. The message, pretty much, it's the cross, and God can do with it what he'll do in each of us. Some of you may just want to sit and think about all of the things that Jesus has done. Some of you may be fascinated by how the Old Testament really does preach the gospel, and then the New Testament just sort of works out the details. Some of you may just realize, I, I don't really know all this about Israel and kings and everything, but whatever that is sounds pretty cool. You may just need to spend some time talking to God and saying, God, show me what it means and what you've done. When Jesus was on the cross, he was not thinking of defeat. He was thinking of pain. He was thinking of loneliness. He was thinking of betrayal. He was thinking of hurt. But he was also thinking of victory and triumph. And that's why we're here today. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the God who sees all things, past, present, and future. You're the God who can work even the most heinous and evil event in all of human history and turn it into the most glorious and blessed event in all of human history. If you can do that with your son, you can do that in our lives, Lord. God, thank you for being the God who will go to all lengths to bring us back to himself. Thank you for this body of believers who come together to worship you, Lord. I pray that you would give us a holy fire, give us a holy love to see what you've done in all of its glory. And may we always keep the cross of Christ as our number one focus. We give you this time of worship, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.